Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 4 of The Dale House Murder by Francis Everton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Yoganand. The Dale House Murder. Chapter 4. Detective Inspector Alport. Ralph evidently had not heard what I had said about the key to the bedroom, and neither could he have heard Alport correctly, for he asked Kenneth in a loud whisper whether he was talking about the key of the poison cupboard. Alport gave him one swift glance, but then he turned to me waiting for my answer to his question. Surely you must be mistaken, I answered at length, when I had conquered my astonishment. Dr. Wallace told me most definitely that he had forgotten to lock the door, and he came back on purpose to ask me to prevent anyone from going upstairs until the police arrived to take charge. Oh, I must be mistaken then, of course, if you say so. The key is in the door all the time, and we all came downstairs again for the sake of a little exercise. My reply seemed to have angered him beyond all reason, and he stuck his ugly little apology for a face over the edge of his stiff stand-up collar and glared at me as he spoke. Then he turned to Ethel. You are quite certain that the key was in the door? But you told me just now that it was. I beg your pardon, but I said nothing of the kind. What I said was that the key was generally in the door. You don't suppose that I stopped to make an inventory? I could have clapped her on the back for standing up to the little spitfire, and as a matter of fact, he seemed rather to enjoy it himself, for he smiled quite amicably and turned to Annie, asking her if she could give him information on the subject. No, sir. As Miss Ethel says, all the bedroom door keys are usually on the inside, and I should expect that Miss Paul Freeman should be there like the rest. Did anyone else hear the doctor tell Mr. Jeffcock that he had forgotten to lock the door? was his next question. No one replied, and I answered rather stiffly that I should have thought that my statement would have been enough. But I dare say was all the comment he made. This, I felt, was not a very auspicious start and argued ill for the more detailed questioning to which we should have to submit, and I wondered what attitude he would take toward the Tundish on his return, if he could behave so abominably to the rest of us now. However, there seemed to be nothing to gain by remonstrance, so I merely shrugged my shoulders and picked up the morning paper which was lying on the table. I think that neither Dr. Jeffreys nor Inspector Brown relished their association with the boorish little man. He was undoubtedly master of the situation, though, and he asked or rather, I should say, told Inspector Brown to have the bedroom door broken open immediately and to send a plain-clothes man to the three addresses at which it was most probable the doctor might be visiting. He got Ethel to write them down on a slip of paper. The man was to come back at once if the doctor was not located. If he was, then he was to be told that he was wanted back at Dale House as urgently as possible, and the man was to wait and escort him home. 
his instructions were rapped out without the least consideration for feelings and i for one felt certain that the tundish would be arrested on suspicion directly he set foot inside the house having packed off dr jeffries and the inspector he crossed the room to where ethel was standing a picture of unhappiness gazing out of the window at the sunlit garden i think that even he was touched i am truly very sorry miss hanson to cause all this bother he said but it simply cannot be avoided my temper may be at fault but there is really no time on such occasions for niceties of conduct as soon as i am satisfied that dr jeffries can make his examination and if it confirms dr wallace's opinion that miss paulfreeman has been poisoned then the house must be searched from top to bottom before anything else is done i'll have the kitchen premises dealt with first so that the maids can return to them and then the drawing room so that you can use it in addition to this later on when my search is completed i shall require you all to tell me everything you can think of that might have a possible bearing on the case that may be quite a lengthy business and i can allow no delay for any reason whatsoever will you please therefore arrange for an early lunch and i shall hope to be ready shortly after 12 he made a stiff little bow and without waiting for any reply he left the room i heard him run upstairs and a little later a crash as the door of stella's room was broken in then he came down to the telephone and i heard him asking for additional men to be sent from the police station to my astonishment i next heard him ask for the clerk in charge at the exchange and after explaining who he was tell her to take down in full and report immediately to him any messages that came either to or from our number until further notice i suppose it was quite an ordinary precaution but it brought home to me as nothing else had the terrible plight in which we all were apparently i was the only one to overhear his message and i went over to ethel who was sitting in the window sill with writing pad and pencil she told me that she was writing to her father and mother but did not know whether she ought to post it on account of her father's health i felt that her letters would probably be intercepted and opened but i told her of the conversation i had overheard but it's preposterous she exclaimed angrily and it seemed to me that there was a note of alarm in her voice surely he has no right to do a thing like that and ought not he to have a warrant before he searches the house I explained that he could most certainly get one if the tundish's diagnosis proved correct and that we should gain nothing by delaying matters or by being awkward she bent on a letter again saying ah oh, how i wish she would come back kenneth was standing against the mantelpiece talking to ralph and i heard him mutter gruffly if he ever does come back ethel gave him one angry look but she made no reply i could not understand kenneth at all even if he did believe the doctor guilty he seemed to have nothing to gain by his behavior he knew that the tundish was a very old friend of ethel the girl to whom he had quite recently became engaged and yet his love seemed to be of such poor stuff that he could not hide his feelings for her sake ralph looked pale and wretchedly ill at ease and i could more readily have understood it had he shown ill will toward the doctor he had fallen head over heels in love with stella and whether his feelings went to any depth or not it must have been a bitter blow for him the evidence was certainly heavy against the tundish it seemed to be inevitable that ralph should feel antagonistic toward him and i thought that in the circumstances he was showing a very creditable forbearance with kenneth on the other hand there was no apparent reason for such uncontrolled hostility but i had overlooked the ready jealousy of a young man in love and was yet to learn that weeks before poor stella's death ethel had already sown the seeds from which many unhappy moments grew by singing the doctor's praises clean-cut in his own opinions he altogether failed to understand that while engaged to him ethel might yet have a very real affection for the tundish i believe that every action of hers showing loyalty to her old friendship added fire to his hot resentment 
having once decided in his own mind that the doctor was guilty then he was a murderer and no longer a human being in need of sympathy and understanding kenneth's love was overwhelmed by his jealousy which in turn was fed by ethel's loyalty to her friend and his own utter inability to compromise or look at a situation through any eyes but his own that she could distress herself over a man when cold blood had taken the life of a young girl a girl staying in her own home at the time and that she could brazenly kiss such a man in front of us all was to him proof positive that her feelings were stronger than those of friendship alone but in spite of his unreasonable behaviour i was truly sorry for kenneth though it was incomprehensible to me that he could stand aloof and frowning while ethel sat alone wretched and distressed it was bad enough for us all but for her with her father and mother away it was a truly devastating experience never i think shall i forget that half hour's wait in the dalehouse dining room we could hear the police moving about as they searched the rooms any intimate conversation was impossible by reason of the presence of the two maids the cook sat with folded arms insolently defiant sniffing loudly at intervals annie stood with quiet tears rolling down her cheeks they neither of them spoke a word ethel pretended to write i leaned over the table with the morning paper spread out but we were all of us listening listening to the police and for the tundish to return wondering what the disagreeable little detective would do when he did come back and thinking which of the rest of us it could be if the doctor were acquitted across my mind as i leaned over the table gazing with unseeing eyes at the paper i was pretending to read there flashed a succession of little scenes ethel and the tundish sitting close to each other earnestly conversing two courts and more away from where i sat perched in the umpire's chair the tundish talking to stella in the drawing-room and the sound of threat in a high-pitched voice the tundish meeting me in the hall directly afterward pleasant and serene and lastly the sound of a woman laughing in the waiting-room suddenly reviving my childhood's terror-faced memories pale miss summerson lying elaborately to the doctor in the dispensary and ethel who was supposed to be up at the club appearing surprisingly from the consulting room having returned to get some tape for the handle of a racket the heat alone apart from all other considerations was almost more than we could bear while the clock on the mantelpiece ticked the seconds away with a regular monotony time seemed to stand holding its breath our nerves were so on edge that when at last the door was briskly opened there was not one amongst us that did not give a little jump it was alport he asked ethel to go with him upstairs and tell him who had slept in different rooms she was with us again in five minutes and told the maids that they could go downstairs and that we if we wished could use the drawing-room once more i felt as though we had been imprisoned for hours but it was barely half-past eleven ethel and margaret and i moved into the other room at once but kenneth and ralph stayed where they were talking in low tones together ethel hesitated at the door and i wondered if she were going to ask them to join us but she thought better of it and followed margaret and me she was about at the end of her endurance and for her sake alone i dreaded the impending conference the drawing-room had been turned topsy-turvy the carpet had been rolled up into the middle of the floor and the furniture including the heavy piano had all been hurriedly moved the music the bookshelves the chair covers they had all been searched and scattered we had expected nothing so disturbing and thorough and the state of the room took us all three by surprise but i for one was secretly glad to have something active to do in putting things to rights margaret i thought was wholly admirable in the way she unselfishly suppressed her own feelings and helped to steady ethel 
As we had crossed the hall, I observed that the policeman had been stationed at the end of the passage to the doctor's wing, standing in such a position that he could command a view both of the stairs to the landing above and to the basement below. I wondered what our neighbours must be thinking of all this police activity, and how long it would be before we had to bear with newspaper publicity in addition to our other troubles. My imagination grew busy with the headlines. Early as it was, Annie was already setting out a cold lunch in the dining room, and Ethel explained that Alport had particularly asked her again to hurry it up, saying that directly the search was completed, he would want to begin his preliminary inquiry. I could not understand the desperate hurry, but she said he had told her that speed was everything, that he could do nothing until he had all the available information at his finger ends, and that such a detail as a meal time could not be allowed to interfere with his plans. He improved, she thought, on better acquaintance, but I agreed with Margaret when she said that it would be difficult to imagine him doing anything else. We had barely finished our little conversation and it was a great relief to talk when the telephone bell rang in the hall. I opened the drawing room door. The policeman still stood on guard at the end of the passage, but although the instrument was only a few yards away from where he stood, he asked me to answer it for him. He evidently had very strict instructions not to move from his position. It was the police station calling and asking for Inspector Brown. I promised to tell him to ring them up at once, and after consulting the sentry, I went upstairs to find him. There was no one about on the landing, and full of curiosity as to what was going on, I ascended the stairs to the floor above. The room in which Stella had slept is so placed that anyone going up the stairs can see right into it when the door is open. It was open on this occasion, and as my eyes reached the level of the upper landing, I found myself looking straight at the nightmare face of the hideous little detective. For a moment, I could not understand how it could be at such a level, but on moving up a few steps, I realized that he was kneeling on the floor in the middle of the room. He had just taken a small envelope out of his pocket, and as I watched, he allowed what looked like two tiny fragments of glass to trickle into it out of his hand. He was evidently deep in thought and entirely lost to his surroundings, for I had taken no precautions to move quietly, and he neither saw me nor heard. There he knelt immovable, the envelope in one hand, a perplexed little smile on his shapeless, protruding lips. I moved forward, but it was not until I was right up to the bedroom door that he realized that he was not alone. If not actual abuse, the very least I expected was some sarcastic remark about my intrusion, but he merely lifted up his hand for silence, for all the world like some diminutive father admonishing his child. I could hardly refrain from laughing at the grotesque little scene until I looked beyond him at the bed with its white sheet covering all that was left of poor Stella. A single wisp of her kinky copper hair came curving over the edge of the sheet. He waited a minute in thought and then asked me what I wanted, moving out to the landing and closing the door, which still hung on its hinges reverently behind him. This is a sad, strange business, he said. I told him about the call for the inspector, and he said he would go and find him at once, but the inspector saved him the trouble, for he came up the stairs as we were speaking together. He was carrying a coat, and he was evidently in a state of some excitement. Well, we have found the key, Mr. Alport. At least, I believe we have. And he put his hand into the side pocket of the coat and brought out an ordinary bedroom door key. It fitted without any trouble, although the lock itself had been almost wrenched from the woodwork when the door was broken open. He handed it over to his superior. Where did you find it? he asked, holding out his hand for the coat as well. Among the other coats on the pegs in the hall. It was a thin alpaca housecoat that the Tundish had been using during the hot weather. 
I recognized it at once and remembered that the doctor had been wearing it only that morning at breakfast time. My heart sank. It was difficult to believe that in the excitement he might have locked Stella's door and then have forgotten all about it. On the other hand, I could think of no reason, even assuming I were willing to admit him a liar, why he should so deliberately come and tell me that the room was unlocked with the key with which he had locked it in one of his own pockets all the time. The detective asked me to whom the coat belonged and I had to tell him. We stood silently in the landing, the three of us, Alport holding out the key in front of him as if it were some astonishing specimen instead of an ordinary key to a bedroom door. I remembered how, as I stood at the telephone when ringing up the police, I had thought that I heard someone on the stairs and how, a few moments later, I had been surprised to find the thunder standing close behind me but puzzle my brains as I might, I could see no reason why, even if he were guilty, as both the detective and the inspector obviously thought him, he should run secretly upstairs to lock Stella's door and then go out of his way to tell me that he hadn't. While it did not seem to me to add much to the real evidence against him, it was certainly one more item for him to explain away on his return. Now, my thoughts had been so absorbing that for a time I had forgotten both my companions and my whereabouts. However, a gentle chuckle from the inspector brought me to my senses, and looking up, I found that, if my thoughts had been interesting, the detective was still gazing at the key as though he had been hypnotized. That is strange, very strange, very strange indeed, he whispered at last. Well, said the inspector, both of you two gentlemen might have been crystal gazing, but there seems to me to be nothing very extraordinary in Dr. Wallace locking the door, putting the key in his pocket, and then forgetting that he had done it. Oh! was Alport's comment, and he shrugged his shoulders in a manner that must have riled the inspector, for his shoulders said, poor fool, as plainly as shoulders could. Then, smiling at me, he added, and so you found it rather intriguing also, my friend? Now I wonder why. And he looked at me appraisingly as though I had suddenly gone up in his estimation. Then he stood thinking deeply again, and I thought for a moment that he was sinking into another reverie, but he went back to... St but he went back into Stella's room and looked out of the window which was immediately over the flat-topped roof of the doctor's wing. Next to the house, the roof is of plain cement, but at the end, away from it, it is covered thickly by a large-leaved ivy which runs riot a good foot deep. I went up and stood beside him, but I could see nothing that might have aroused a sudden interest, or which could have any possible connection with the key that had been found in the doctor's pocket. He shut the window down again, saying, well, we are wasting time. Inspector, you are wanted on the telephone. Mr. Jeffcock, and you, Inspector, as well. I want you both to promise me most solemnly that nothing we have spoken of together and nothing you have seen, Mr. Jeffcock, shall be mentioned to another soul. Neither the finding of the key nor anything else must be spoken of. I gave him my promise. I thank you. It's of great importance. And now, I shall be obliged if you will return to the rest. What on earth could he have seen that was so important the finding of the key in the doctor's coat? Why did he go back into Stella's room and look out of the window? And uh, what were the little pieces of glass that I had caught him so carefully preserving? These were the questions I asked myself as I went back to the drawing room, but I agreed with Ethel that the little man was inclined to improve as one got to know him better. Ethel and Margaret had, I found, completed the straightening out of the furniture. I was afraid that they might ask me for the reason for my prolonged absence, and I had no answer ready to give them, but although I fancied Margaret watched me with a kind of half-eager expectation, they neither of them asked me any questions. Annie came to tell us that the lunch was served. It was a sad meal. A place 
had been set for Stella by mistake. The Tundish had always said a short grace before our meals. It was a practice of Hanson's, which he kept up while he was away. Ethel began to say it in his absence, but she broke down after the first sentence and had to retire to the window while she regained her self-control. What little we ate, we ate in silence. Any attempt at general conversation seemed out of place, and the thoughts that occupied all our minds were too painful for speech. Yes, and too secret for speech. For I am sure that in spite of the doctor's appeal, we were each one of us busy with conjecture. The Tundish, and if not the Tundish, then who? We were about halfway through our meal when he returned. We heard him tell the man stationed in the hall to let Inspector Brown know that he was back, and then he opened the door. Ethel got up at once with a little cry and went to meet him, her arms half extended. We were all forgotten. Oh, Tundish, I am so glad, so glad that you are back again, she said, and there was such pleasure and trust in her voice, and such sympathy in her looks, that it was no wonder Kenneth bit his lips and turned the other way. The doctor looked tired, and little beads of perspiration glistened on his forehead, the result of a hurried return, I surmised, and not of fear or panic, for his eyes were steady and his look self-confident and calm. You goose, he laughed, putting his hand gently on his shoulder. But where's my thin coat? This one is well nigh unbearable. I thought I'd left it hanging in the hall. Ethel told him how the whole of the house was being searched and how Stella's toe had had to be broken down. I was observing him very closely, as indeed I think we all were, but he showed no trace of embarrassment. His astonishment seemed both spontaneous and genuine, and to have no appearance of being overacted or forced. I concluded that it was altogether too natural to be simulated. But then I remembered how, within half a minute of his conversation with Stella in the drawing-room on the previous night, he had met me in the hall with a pleasant smile and a face that showed no trace of either trouble or concern. Now again he was not perturbed, and he spoke quietly and without emphasis. But I know for a fact that I did not lock the door. I intended to go back and do it, and then the telephone call came through and put it out of my head. You're sure that you didn't run upstairs and lock it after I spoke to you in the hall? I assured him that I had not, and he stood for a moment obviously puzzled. I glanced round to see what the others were making of it. Kenneth sat looking straight at the doctor, fierce and grim. Ralph, his face pale and his head bent, was playing with a little heap of crumbs. Margaret was looking at Ralph. Oh, well, that'll be another little mystery for our friends, the police, to explain. And he took a seat at the end of the table. It'll be for you to make the explanations. I thought to myself, as I remembered where the key had been found, and I must confess that I longed to break the solemn promise I had only just made. Directly the doctor took up his seat. Kenneth got up from his with deliberate ostentation, though he obviously hadn't finished his lunch, asking Ethel if she would go with him into the drawing room. She followed him reluctantly, and the Tundish went on with his meal, but I could see that his thoughts, like mine, were busy with the subject of the conversation. Shortly after they had left us, Alport came in, followed by Inspector Brown. The Tundish, bland and dignified, rose at once to greet him. I'm so sorry that I have put you to all the trouble of sending out a man to track me down, he said, offering his hand to the inspector, with whom he was evidently acquainted, but I must confess that I deliberately omitted to leave my address. My case was a serious one, and I had no wish to be interrupted. But now, gentlemen, I am entirely at your disposal. He turned to Alport with a hand outstretched, a quick look at Inspector Brown inviting an introduction. The detective took his hand at once, saying, That's all right, doctor, though I admit that you have caused me some anxiety. Now, 
I should like you to take me into the dispensary and show me the poison cupboard which up to now we haven't disturbed. The Tandish asked if I might accompany them, explaining how I had been with him when the cupboard was last open, and that I could testify to the possession of some of the bottles. Alport agreed, and I went along with them. The safe was opened, and for a time he stood silently looking at the collection of bottles. I could see how immediately the Chinese flagon attracted his attention. The doctor told him which bottle he had used in preparing the fatal draught. Alport grunted and asked the inspector to fetch him his bag from the hall. From it he took a pair of rubber gloves, and putting them on, he picked up the bottle and placed it carefully in a box containing cotton wool at the bottom of the bag. Next, he asked the Tundish from which bottle he thought the poison had been taken, assuming that an addition had been made to the sleeping draught in the manner he suspected. That is undoubtedly the bottle, the Tundish replied, pointing to the little flagon. You say, undoubtedly. How can you be so sure that it was poison from that particular little bottle and not from one of the others? There are many to choose from. I am sure about it, first because of the peculiarly bloodshot eyes, and second because of its very unusual smell. I smelled the dregs at the bottom of the medicine glass when I went upstairs immediately after breakfast to make my first examination, and having smelled it before, I cannot be mistaken. Does it taste? Yes, even in extremely dilute quantities it is bitter. Alpo took the fragile little bottle between finger and thumb of his gloved hand and held it up to the light. He held it up, looking at it absorbed in thought, and then quite suddenly I saw him give a little start, as if he had noticed something of particular interest, and he smiled to himself as I had watched him smiling on his knees in Stella's room. I turned from him to the bottle he held in his hand, but I failed to see what it was that had quickened his attention. But this bottle is very nearly full, he said after a pause. The neck is exceedingly narrow, and the liquid is less than half an inch from the bottom of the stopper. Once more the Tundish explained how he had obtained the poison, telling the detective exactly what he had told me only two days ago. He ended up by saying that a single drop added to Stella's medicine would have been quite sufficient to kill. Can you tell me from the position of the liquid in the neck exactly how much of the poison has been used? The doctor thought for a moment and then replied, Not with any great accuracy, of course, but I should say not more than two or three drops at the most. I brought two similar bottles with me from China, giving them both to Dr. Hansen. They were both of them full to the stoppers, and I had them sealed before my journey. Hansen used about half the contents of one bottle in the course of his investigations, with which I helped him. The remainder he sent away for further examination test to a chemical society to which we both belong. Of the contents of the second bottle, we used exactly one cubic centimeter in an experiment we made together last time I visited him, which uh, would be about six months ago. As far as I can remember, we left it with the liquid in practically its present position. I asked Hansen if he had done any further work on it the day he left for Folkestone, and he told me that he had not. You will understand we were interested together. That's why I can state with a considerable amount of certainty that at the most only two or three drops have been used. Alport stood turning the tiny flagon this way and that, but obviously listening attentively to the doctor's statement, which had been made in a voice that showed not the slightest tremor or concern. Then he turned round quickly and asked him, You would be surprised then if I were to find any recent fingerprints of yours in the bottle? Yes, any more recent than six months ago. Has it occurred to you that whoever added the poison to Miss Paul Freeman's medicine, providing you are correct in your assumption that it has been taken from this bottle, must have been closely familiar with its properties? He or she evidently intended to kill, or else why add poison at all? Yet, on your own showing, only two or three drops were added. 
it was known to the murderer that that would be enough. She was familiar with his action. The four of us stood in silence. Then he added very quietly, that, you will agree, narrows down the field of inquiry somewhat. The Tandish neither paled nor turned a hair as he replied. Yes, oh yes, it certainly narrows it down. As far as I can see, it reduces it to either me or Jeff Cork here or to Miss Hansen. To my knowledge, we are the only three people in the house having information about the poison. To your knowledge? Why do you say that to your knowledge? Because it's always possible that the maids or someone else may have overheard Hansen and myself talking together about it. Miss Summerson, for instance. Oh, Miss Summerson knows all about it. In fact, she has helped us with some of our experiments. She left the house, however, before the draft was made up and she has not yet returned. To your knowledge, Alport added. Why, whatever do you mean? The Tundish said, showing some little excitement at last. Miss Paul Freeman's room looks on to the flat-top roof of the surgery wing and an entry could have been made from it with the greatest ease. The window, I take it, would be open on night like last night? Yes, it was open wide at the bottom when I went to the room after breakfast. But Miss Hansen had been into the room before me. But it is possible. So far as I know, Miss Summerson and Miss Palfrey men were complete strangers to each other. To your knowledge once more, the detective laughed. But if you had my experience, you would know that it is by no means safe to assume that apparent strangers are strangers in fact. Again, I saw that the tundish was moved and his eyelids gave a flicker. Did the little man notice it too? I wondered. And did he know of the doctor's previous meeting with Stella and China? Or was the shot in the dark? He seemed to be entirely absorbed in the little bottle and to be carrying on the conversation as a sort of accompaniment to his examination of it. It almost appeared as if he thought that if he were only to look at it long enough and hard enough, he might wring its secret from it. And all the time he looked, his face held its puzzled smile. Well, let us return to the dining room, he said at length, and he laid the Chinese flag in carefully in the box and his bag along with the other. We were just leaving the dispensary when a sudden thought occurred to me. Wait a moment, I cried. Surely it is not safe to assume that only two or three drops of poison have been taken from the bottle? Anyone would almost certainly fill it up again to its old level, from the tap which is all handy at the sink, before they put it back in its place in the cupboard. Alport turned round with a smile of amusement at the excitement I had shown. Exactly so, he said. But I must confess that I have been expecting the doctor to call my attention to the possibility. I never thought of it, said the Tundish. I'm glad, was a rather surprising reply. The End of Chapter 4